And welcome to this interview special episode of the Tech EU podcast. I am Andre Degler, the host and producer of the show. We are still not done sharing with you the interviews that we recorded in Helsinki during the Slush conference a few weeks ago. So today I have prepared two conversations that I wanted you to listen to. First, we've got our founding editor Robin Wouters interviewing Jean-Marie Paquet, the Director General for Research and Innovation at the European Commission. Let's check this one out. Hey, this is Robin Wouters from Tech.eu. I'm here at the Slush Conference in Helsinki, sitting down with Jean-Éric Paquet, who is the Director General of uh, Science and Innovation in the European Commission. Uh, what brings you here? Well, I'm here to, to find out what Slush really is uh, and meet the startup communities in Europe. I mean, this is a key component, obviously, of research and innovation and will increasingly be so. And um, uh, so I'm here to, to meet them and, and learn. I'm, of course, also here to say that um, Europe is in fact very good at innovation. We are creating more startups. You are more numerous in Europe than anywhere else in the world. This is really a testimony to your risk-taking, your talent, your ideas, but also I think the fact that um, across Europe, universities, regions, uh, member states, ourselves, we have invested in ecosystems. They work more and more effectively, and so there is, um, of course, with uh, VC funding, but also with a lot of uh, support from these ecosystems, uh, a real success story here for Europe. Great. Without going into too much detail, what have you learned from uh, some of the meetings you, you met with some unicorn founders from yeah. the investment community um, in Europe and, and beyond? So yeah. what have you learned from the meeting so far? So, as I say, this can perfectly well be done in Europe. In reality, so start, startups, we you are there uh, and scaling up, which is of, often perceived also as challenging. I think it's challenging wherever you are as a startup uh, in, your, in the US, in Asia, in Europe. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge, which is why you are... The, the community is so is so impressive often, and scaling up is happening also in Europe. Uh, the state of the, of European tech was released now during Slush. We have now 99 uh, tech unicorns in Europe, uh, which is uh, of course not entirely matching what is happening in the US, also in terms of size or, or in Asia. But the direction of travel is uh, accelerating spectacularly. So this, I think, is one point which I I want to retain. And also uh, what I see is that increasingly uh, the stories which you hear is that the unicorns are developing and scaling up in Europe. Often, of course, they become global, uh, but very often, and that is what matters for me uh, in research and innovation, their research and development basis is very much uh, set up here in Europe and grows here in Europe. Why? Because we have uh, remarkable science, great universities, and we are attracting back uh, talent to Europe. People are keen to do research in Europe. They are keen to do innovation and entrepreneurship in Europe. Also, I think, because of the quality of the ecosystems emerging in many member states and because, frankly, living in Europe is quite nice. <laughs> Definitely can be. Um, so uh, the commission is being formed at the moment. Um, the New Horizon Europe uh, program is being kick-started. Um, the budget that's been proposed is 100 billion euros. Yeah. Uh, what are the chances of actually uh, getting to that amount and what will, it, what will you do with it? Yeah, yeah it's an ambitious uh, budget proposed by Carlos Moedas, the outgoing commissioner. 
and Maria Gabriel, the the next commissioner, who uh, I hope will be able to start on the 1st of December, uh, are indeed fighting for a very ambitious budget. Uh, I mean, how likely is it that we get it? Um, Many of of you are certainly following difficult discussions on the EU budget, uh, so there is a lot of pressure upwards, downwards across the entire EU budget. But at the same time, I also observe that leaders, uh, which will ultimately decide on that EU budget, in, a, in all member states are identifying innovation and, and research and also education, uh, digital investment as what is the future of this continent. So be it in itself, but also as uh, packages of solutions for our climate uh, transition, for, for the working of our a social fabric, research and innovation is what is coming up all the time. So that makes me indeed um, hopeful. So what do we do with this um, with this budget? So let's see exactly how, how ambitious it remains in the end game, but it will be substantial, there's no doubt about that. And essentially we, we hope to be able to continue to nurture the best science. That's the European Research Council. I mean, an, an amazing success, telling to the world that the best science is in Europe and the best scientists are coming to Europe. Then, of course, we will also try to uh, be even more impactful in providing uh, across the challenges we are facing packages of solution. That's missions under Horizon Europe, partnerships, dealing with with climate, um, with energy, uh, with the bioeconomy. And then last, and this is really the development of Horizon Europe, we want to do much more in innovation. We are already today doing quite a bit with you. But we also want now to be more impactful on the scaling up, scaling up in particular in uh, deep tech, where the interface between digital, artificial intelligence and engineering or life science is the next wave of innovation. And where, again, our science, our engineering makes Europe uh, a key player. And if we get that one right in Europe, we will lead on this next innovation wave, including uh, with climate solutions, for example. And for that, um, Carlos Moedas uh, has proposed to create the European Innovation Council, uh, which the next commissioner, uh, Maria Gabriel, will, will have the opportunity to put in place. So what can uh, tech entrepreneurs expect from this? Because they, they face uh, problems that are not always related to capital, but also to talent, being able to attract them, retain them, reward them, um, but also increasingly, you know, some... Uh, some issues with, with legislation, employee ownership, giving them stock options. So how do you plan to tackle those issues? No, clearly, um, this is uh, I mean, very diverse and depending on the, on the policy area within which innovation takes place. Uh, I mean, I would argue um, on regulation that, uh, I mean, obviously regulation needs to be more nimble, more agile, allowing more space to experiment. Uh, sandboxes, I think, are a very, very good way forward. Also, it needs to be probably a little bit more agile in developing over time because we are increasingly struggling to follow you, to follow innovation uh, with regulation. But at the same time, uh, I think regulation is also uh, very necessary for innovation. It uh, spurs innovation. Uh, and I think there are I mean, two obvious examples. The first one is the regulation in place now on, on energy, on energy policy with very clear targets on energy efficiency, renewables also, which gives uh, the obvious signal to to the innovators and markets that it makes sense to invest uh, resources into that area. The other example which I find quite remarkable is on uh, data privacy. We are now, I think, in a conversation where the General Data Protection Regulation, which was uh, much uh, feared when it was prepared, is now being implemented, no doubt challenging 
for companies, is, that's very clear. But at the same time, this level of privacy is what our society expects. And we are now leading also in terms of standard setting, discussion at least, um, across the world. And that also uh, is a basis for innovation. I met this amazing startup uh, in Estonia, uh, which uh, developed a blockchain technology, which allows to use uh, health data from patients across the, the country, whilst ensuring absolute privacy. And so combining the two. And this blockchain technology, uh, spurred by, by regulation, is now being deployed in many other areas. So yes, regulation needs to be agile. Regulation um, needs to be uh, capable of creating space to experiment, but regulation, I think, is also a real asset uh, for innovation, in particular when regulation is deployed at EU level. This is the case, for example, in fintech. This makes us very strong in fintech. Fantastic. In the meantime, the music has uh, kicked out here at Slush, so we're going to keep it at that. But thank you so much for your time, and I uh, wish you a good second day of Slush tomorrow. Thank you so much, and thanks for the time you, you had to me. Have a good day. Hey, welcome back to the interview special episode of the TechEU podcast. I hope you liked the first conversation and I'm sorry for the sound recording issues. We have already taken all measures we could to make sure that this will not happen again. Now, from the questions of policy and funding, let us move on to my favorite topic of e-scooters and urban mobility. The second interview for the day is with Frederick Hjelm, the co-founder and CEO at Voya Technology, that, if you have missed it, a Swedish e-scooter company that's recently raised 85 million US dollars in funding. Let's check this one out. Okay, let's start from the beginning. So what is your name and what are you doing? Yeah, so my name is Frederick Elman. I'm the CEO and founder of Void Technology. And Void Technology is the, yeah, the leading um, European e-scooter operator. Uh, we um, uh, went live uh, last summer in Stockholm uh, as, the first, uh, as the first company in Europe, um, or first European company, I should say. So at that point... We had e-scooters in Europe only in Stockholm and in Paris, uh, mm -hmm. in Paris by an American company called Lime. And since then, we have expanded into 40 countries, and, uh, 40 cities, not countries, uh, all in Europe, and done uh, yeah, around 15, 1, 5 million rides. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been a busy year. Right, that's very impressive. So before we go to more serious questions, what was it about the free candy for the riders uh, here around Slush? <laughs> no, so we we have a booth here at uh, at Slush where uh, where people can try our scooters and also get some free candy, and you get free candy if you <laughs> uh, if you fulfill and do our traffic school. Uh, so a couple of months ago, we released the first uh, uh, world's uh, traffic school for e-scooters uh, that's certified both on Swedish and also European level. Um, and we, we did it because when we did our service uh, uh, with our users, we saw that a lot of our users are young people living in cities without driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a driver's license, you usually don't have that much knowledge about traffic rules and uh, how to how how to drive a vehicle, may it be a car, may it be a bike, may it be a scooter in uh, in a city. Uh, so then we. Um, yeah, we built this traffic school and the first weeks of the traffic school, we had more people actually completing our yeah, e-traffic school for, for e-scooters than people taking car driver's licenses in Sweden and in Germany. Uh, so uh, the interest has been uh, huge. Wow. So uh, did you incentivize people in any way to, com to complete this school? Uh, yeah. Uh, through um, If you complete the school, um, uh, yeah, all parts of it, you get um, uh, credits uh, to ride for later on. Right. This is great. So which uh, countries are you uh, in right now? Uh, so we are in the Nordic countries. So Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland. We are in the German-speaking countries, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, France, Italy and Spain. 
Right. Uh, are you planning to cover like the whole Europe? What's the focus? Yeah, we think uh, Europe is the most attractive region in the world for this uh, because uh, if you look at Europe and compare it with the uh, with the US, for example, European cities are more dense. Uh, right. They have better infrastructure for bikes and so on. Um, and they, the people and the politicians in Europe are more conscious and more progressive uh, when it comes to changing how cities look like. So we will continue to focus on Europe uh, and yeah, we'll move into more European markets as well. Right. So we'll get to regulations in a bit. Uh, now let's uh, uh, talk about the recent uh, news. So you've just raised uh, 85 million US dollars, uh, another round. Uh, uh, why do you Why do you need so much money for? Um, so um, we are investing a lot in, uh, or have invested a lot in expansion. I mean, we've gone from from one to 40 cities uh, in uh, yeah a bit more than a year, um, and. Um, It is a capital-intensive business. It's becoming less and less capital-intensive uh, since we see that uh, uh, the new, the newer generation of scooters and so on are lasting longer and longer. Our operations is better than any uh, any time before when it comes to repairs and maintenance. Uh, but we will continue to invest uh, in the tech platform, in the operational platform, and in vehicle R&D uh, to get to profitability uh, mm-hmm. because we believe in. Um, uh, as the markets look like today, uh, we need to get to full profitability, real profitability, uh, much earlier than uh, uh, yeah, the mobility companies in the previous wave, uh, the ride-hailing companies, Uber, TaxFi mm-hmm. and Bolt, mm-hmm. uh, had to do. How far are you from being profitable? I mean, we've seen already this year that um, a bunch of cities uh, uh, were profitable. Um, and, um, and next year, we want these cities to be profitable over the full year. And uh, the year after 2021-2022, we should get to a uh, company profitability. Right. Now, oh, this is pretty impressive. And uh, what was that about uh, the previous round? Because like I read uh, the story that came down to that you did not actually use all the money that you raised in the previous round because you got a, a better sort of valuation, better terms uh, Yeah. So early on in the, in the startups, uh, financing financing rounds, you usually have like tranches. So right. the, say that the round in total is uh, 30 million and you draw down 15 million first and then you can draw down another 15 if X, Y and Z happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can decide to draw down, uh, draw down the, uh, the second tranche or you can decide to, uh, if things go really well, you can decide to, uh, yeah, to go on the market to, and try to find better terms. Right. Uh, so, 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 which uh, which happened to you? Did you decide, or did just uh, the uh, milestones uh, not happen? Uh, the milestones happened, and uh, uh, we uh, we moved much faster and so much better performance than uh, than expected. So we, uh, uh, yeah, we took another offer. Right. So, as far as I have seen recently, you're not calling yourself an e-scooter company anymore as much, but you're calling yourself micro mobility provider. What does it mean? I think the. What it comes from is now we are an e-scooter operator. We are an e-scooter company because we the one hundred percent of our revenues right. come from e-scooters. So and anything else would be, um, yeah, would be uh, misguiding. Uh, but I think our view on the future is that the e-scooters are not the silver bullet, uh, but uh, the world will be multimodal. Uh, there will be uh, e-scooters. There will be e-bikes, bikes, e-mopeds, and so on um, in uh, in cities. Uh, connected to, to public transportation and so on. And we, we think that e-scooters are the perfect way, the entry point into the, yeah, the full stack of mobility, mm-hmm. uh, which we uh, at some point will go after um, yeah, some modes in-house and some, uh, some modes with, uh, with partners. 
right. So you are uh, uh, sort of uh, riding the trend of mobility as a service in a way. I mean, we we will um, never become like a mobility as a service company. I mean, the mobility as a service company, I, uh, as, as I categorize it, is a company that wants to be some kind of aggregator and not uh, operate anything uh, right. themselves. We right. are experts in uh, software, hardware, and heavy operations. I mean, in the beginning, people were talking about this model uh, as it as if it was a pure marketplace model. Yeah. But in reality, it's uh, I mean, it's more uh, we have more similar similarities with the logistics companies with like Amazon, how you run warehouses and so on with the pure marketplace business. And we are experts in that. Right, understood. So I have a question coming from uh, my co-host of this uh, podcast, Natalie, oh. uh, who is not here. But uh, her question was like this, uh, and uh, it was uh, provoked uh, by uh, what was happening outside of the venue here at Slash. So the question is as follows. If I see a Voy e-scooter next to a Lime and a Tear and a Bird and whatnot, why should I take a Voy? I think in the end what will happen with this market is that... Uh, uh, we see that most uh, uh, most cities so far have been unregulated. It's been, you know, you and Natalie could have started the e-scooter company and uh, gone live in Helsinki or gone live in Paris and so on. What's happening now is that cities are moving towards licenses more and more. They give licenses to one, two or perhaps three players in a city. Uh, and uh, when the cities are looking, uh, l- looking at players and see, I mean, which companies to choose, uh, we at Voy we have invested a lot in that from day one. We thought that we need to do this together with the cities. We need to get green lights. We need to collaborate and integrate into the, I mean, into the fabric of urban transportation that are around the cities. And uh, what we see now when cities are going towards licenses is that um, uh, we. Um, yeah, we're winning most of them. I think we have 10 licenses so far, uh, more than anyone else in Europe. And that, of course, I mean, take Marseille as an example, the second biggest city in France, where we got the license now for three years, uh, starting from, I think, uh, yeah, last week or something. So now we can invest in the city long term. And we have competitors there. And on Natalie's question there, in the end, it's about, I mean, why do you choose... Uh, um, why do you choose, for example, uh, uh, the gym you're going to or the airline you're using or um, uh, yeah, some other products that are not deeply, deeply uh, differentiated, uh, but uh, you have a preference uh, perhaps because of uh, brand, perhaps because of uh, hardware, software, perhaps because of loyalty program. Uh, so in the end, it's about being, I mean, being a bit better um, than your competitors on Operations to understand where to put the scooters, um, to understand how to recharge them in the best way. It's about being better on brand. How do you build a brand, a mobility brand that people love? It's about uh, uh, building a better product, uh, loyalty programs, B2B and so on. Uh, so in the end, all of that compounds. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned Marseille. Uh, are you also in Paris still? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So Paris is going into a licensing process, and we'll give out licenses to three players. I think early next year, uh, right. we will be part of that. Right. So, and uh, you mentioned uh, the operational uh, excellence, if you will. So, how does it work for you? What happens in the back end of Voy? Yeah. So, uh, me and my co-founder Douglas, um, we both have a background from from the military. Uh, Douglas has been in the military and worked in logistics and the heavy operations, uh, yeah, for ten, fifteen years now already. Um, and uh, what we, I mean, in the beginning, um, uh, yeah, we we thought that. 
or a lot of people thought that, I mean, the best operations people for a business like this, it's uh, rather the people that have been at Uber or uh, other marketplace businesses. But what we quickly realized that uh, what we need is the best people in the world on heavy logistics, heavy operations, people who have actually moved stuff uh, from point A to point B. I mean, real physical things. Right. Uh, people who had been in logistics at Amazon, in the military, uh, e-commerce and so on. Uh, so we, yeah, we have uh, put together a, a world-class team of, uh, uh, of people like that and now yeah, operate warehouses uh, in uh, all the cities we are um, with uh, yeah, built-own software for repair management, for inventory and so on. And now yeah, we're seeing that uh, uh, paying off. Right. So, and uh, how do you work? Uh, what sort of uh, do you employ your mechanics? Do you employ uh, the people who uh, work on charging your devices? Uh, yeah. So we don't use any gig workers. Uh, so we have. Uh, yeah, we took operations in house because we uh, understood that this is. I mean, this is core in our business. We need to be able to control it. Right. We need accountability. Um, and um, uh, so both on uh, both on charging and also repairs and maintenance. Uh, we own the processes and we have uh, our own people or work with uh, uh, yeah, logistics companies for some tasks. Right. And uh, how big the company is at the moment? Uh, so um, HQ in Stockholm is around 150 people. Uh, and then we have a couple of hundred people yeah, uh, working in operations and so on out, uh, out in Europe. Right. So I recently uh, had a conversation with uh, uh, one of the co-founders of Dot, so another mm-hmm. e-scooter company. And yeah. uh, after that interview, I got an interesting email from uh, one of our listeners uh, who described uh, his own case in which uh, he used an e-scooter to go a certain route uh, to a, a certain organization or place. And at some point, uh, the city authorities did what they tend to do more often today is they limited uh, the areas in the city where uh, e-scooters could be parked. Uh, what it led to uh, was that uh, uh, the listener in question basically just bought a uh, an e-scooter for himself and just started using it. So how do you uh, deal with that sort of uh, uh, issue for yourself? Um, I think this is a broader question. It's about regulations. How much should we regulate? Because we want to regulate as much. Uh, I mean, we want to regulate so uh, that things are in order and it's clean and so on in cities, but we don't want to regulate as much so we uh, um, yeah, we restrict innovation and we restrict the user experience. Uh, and I think in all cities we are, it's, I mean, it's uh, about finding that balance. And we see that some cities... Um, are doing a better and more progressive job uh, on that, while other cities are regulating a bit uh, too much, which makes it uh, unprofitable for the companies, it makes it difficult for the user, and in the end, uh, doesn't help to solve the urban transportation uh, problems and challenges we see. So do you think that limiting areas in which you can park your e-scooter is too much too much regulation? Uh, no, I think it. Uh, w- we should have no parking zones. I mean, uh, at some at some places in cities, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to park. But I mean, it cannot it can also not be too much because then no one will use the service. So, but do you th- do you see it as uh, a reason uh, why you lose users that people just get too? much in love with their e-scooters and decide to buy one for themselves instead of using the service? Yeah, I got that question quite a lot and very often from investors. And what we see is that it's quite fascinating that e-scooters are 
potentially the first uh, the first vehicle the first mode of transportation that's in that's um, introduced to the market to the broader market through sharing right because if you look at all other vehicles they were introduced to the market through ownership um, and what we see uh, when we're doing user research and um, and so on we see that uh, the users who are actually buying their own scooters i mean they like it so much that they are actually buying one and there will always be situations every week where it's just inconvenient to to have your own one and that's i mean that to me uh, that goes back to why i founded this company and my previous company both in the sharing economy uh, it's just more convenient and it's better to share uh, so I, I think it's good when people buy their own because that shows they like the, they like the mode, they like micro-mobility, and they will use our services uh, now and then. Right. You also said uh, uh, before, uh, mentioning the innovation that is uh, being stifled sometimes by regulation, but like, how much of an innovation is actually e-scooter sharing and how much of it is just of a pollution of the sidewalks of, with piles of e-scooters lying down? Um, No, I would say that uh, I think we all agree that uh, it's it doesn't make sense that uh, yeah look at Uber, look at Taxify, Bolt. Around fifty percent of the rides are shorter than five kilometers. Um, most of those trips are with one passenger. Um, so we're doing a lot of short uh, taxi trips, and also we see that we're doing a lot of short car ta- uh, court, uh, car trips uh, every day in cities all around the world. We need to change that. I mean, we can't have as much congestion, pollution, and noise uh, as we have in many cities today. I mean, I started to look into this when I lived in Moscow in Russia for four years, and I love the city, but I hate how transportation works in Moscow. Uh, and I think uh, our generation will uh, will drive that change um, because we, many of us, will never buy a car. We want convenience, and we we're also ready to share things. Um, and we still uh, we still have a lot of challenges for e-scooters, um, such as the ones you mentioned, with too much vehicles on, yeah, parked in the wrong uh, wrong place and so on. But I think that's I mean that's a part of innovation to yeah, for innovation to find its place into um, yeah into the um, into the current situation. And it will take some time, but we'll get there. But how do you see it being solved? Um, in collaboration with the cities, I mean, for example, take Paris as an example. Everyone understands that it, it it's not healthy. That yeah, there were, I think, ten uh, e-scooter providers in Paris uh, early this uh, early this year. Now Paris is yeah, giving out licenses to three players, judging on sustainability, safety, operational excellence, tech capabilities, and so on, uh, basically to solve these uh, things. I mean, to solve the parking thing with better tech. Do we uh, yeah to understand? Is the scooter standing up? Is it lying down? Is it stand? Is it parked where it should be parked, or is it parked somewhere else? Um, and um, on operations, make sure that the companies operating in a city like Paris are responsible ones. Uh, they can make sure that there is good order, that there is cleanliness, and so on. Uh, so um, I'm I'm not worried about uh, that one. Actually, we're solving it together with the cities, both on the regulatory side, but on our side, uh, on the tech and operational side. So are you saying that at some point uh, at the end of the day we will see people just going around and, uh, I don't know, finding the scooters that are lying down in a pile and uh, making them uh, standing up uh, upright orderly? Yeah, of course. And uh, we, I mean, we need to start by incentivizing the, the users, the, yeah, the people who uh, uh, use the scooter or the bike uh, uh, 
as the last person to, I mean, to take responsibility through incentivizing them, through you know taking photos of the of the school after after it was uh, left and things like that. Uh, but then, uh, I mean, eventually we, um, as we already have in many cities, we have to have like operations uh, and our people making sure that uh, things are as they should be. I mean, not lying in a pile. Okay. Do you also believe in a virtual hub idea? Yeah, we're doing virtual hubs in in quite a few cities already, including Paris now. Uh, since uh, a couple of weeks back, with like mandatory parking zones. Right. Is um, it working for you? Um, it's getting better and better. I mean, it's still early, so we're still learning a lot. Uh, but we will definitely go in that direction, and that's of course. Uh, I mean, you, you both need the very good tech. Uh, you need GPS on uh, like meter or uh, fifty centimeter accuracy. Right. Um, and uh, then you need like the operational platform also to support that. And how do you deal with vandalism? Um, it's interesting with vandalism because uh, what we see is that when we when we go into a city, it peaks. Um, but then with time, as we are in a city, vandalism goes, goes down mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, in many of the cities now, um, where we have been for a longer time, we basically see um, no, uh, yeah, close to zero uh, vandalism because people people get used to it. In the beginning, it, yeah, it's a bit exciting for, for some people to try, can I privatize it? Can I do something with it? But when they realize that, uh, <laughs> that they can't, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, relatively recently, you also introduced to the second generation of your e-scooters, right? Yeah, third, actually. Third? Yeah. And so I saw uh, in some of the previous interviews that you were saying that uh, the projected lifespan of the last generation is 18 months yeah. of an e-scooter. So what is the real lifespan of an e-scooter right now for Voy? Um So... I mean, how, the, how this industry started uh, for us and for the others was that uh, there were no, uh, yeah, there were only consumer scooters out there. Of course. Uh, so the consumer scooters were not really built for this. I mean, we still see that the first generation of consumer scooter with, um, yeah, the excellence in repairs and maintenance, many of them last more than 12 months uh, already. I mean, we have tens of thousands of them still on the streets, uh, the first generation. Um, and we see that with every model, uh, yeah, we get better and better in designing and building them. Uh, our operations get better and better. And we have said that by 2020, by end of 2020, we should have yeah, an average lifetime of all our vehicles on, on the whole fleet of 24 months. And 24 months? Yeah. So, but uh, what is it right now, though? On the on the latest generation, so that's the third generation for us. Uh, we see it being uh, when we look at the cohorts, we see it being yeah around eighteen months. But it cannot be eighteen months because you already only introduced it in May. Yeah, of course. But I mean, when you compare the cohorts with the previous cohorts, uh, you have to extrapolate, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as you say, to get the, I mean, to get the final number of that, you you need to have them out for eighteen, twenty four, thirty six months. But I mean, it's statistics in that. Yeah, but that's what, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to, to get to. So what is the current number for the actual current fleet and not for a handful of the newest scooters? Uh, yeah, so we've had the third, uh, yeah, we've had three generations of vehicles now. The first one were, uh, yeah, more the consumer, uh, mm-hmm. the consumer scooters and nine bots. Uh, and we see, I mean, that the actual lifetime of those all over the whole cohorts is somewhere around, getting up to a year now because it's, it's the same thing there we thought they would last just for a couple of months but mm-hmm. now we see that many of them we've had more than a year and then of course the average lifetime is uh, uh, being dragged up um, on the second generation it's better when we look at the cohorts so say somewhere between 12 18 months when we compare the cohorts and when we look at cohorts we see that okay so 
after one month, after two months, after three months, how many of the vehicles are still in service and getting rides uh, every day. Uh, and on the third generation, yeah, we when we look at the cohorts, we think uh, 18 to 24 months. Um, and when do you think you will be able to replace all the first generation scooters with uh, the newer ones? Uh, since they're lasting much longer than what we uh, than what we expected, uh, we uh, um, uh, at the end we will have to make a decision. I think uh, since the f- so much is happening with uh, um, with vehicle development that at some point the first generation of vehicle will just be obsolete uh, for the users and they will not fulf- fulfill the criteria we have on uh, user experience on uh, repairability on uh, safety and so on. Um, but I think. I mean, until the um, yeah, end of next year, we will have many of them out in uh, many of them out in service. Right. Do you have uh, smartphone holders on this newest model? Um, yeah. So on the newest one uh, um, yeah, that we are having out in Paris now, uh, yeah, we do. Great. This is something that I always really miss when I have to take an. Yes. I mean, and it's the same for me when I'm in uh, uh, when I'm in cities that I'm not that familiar with. I mean, you, yeah, you need some kind of navigation. Right. And uh, are you? also interested like i know that you're uh, working uh, with the uk authorities as well to try and uh, uh, get uh, your e-scooters there so how has that been going and what's the problem there uh, so in the summer we had uh, we had a meeting with the transport minister michael ellis on this topic um, basically to yeah to help uh, the uk government to understand how yeah what's happening in other countries in europe what's best practice when it comes to vehicle classification what's best practice when it comes to city uh, city regulations uh, and uh, i mean we we heard and uh, felt a strong interest from the mm-hmm. uk government but mm-hmm. we also felt and heard that uh, um, yeah, brexit is uh, coming up a lot of uncertainties this is not really on the agenda which i think is very sad i mean uk now will be Uh, potentially, UK and Ireland will be the uh, the last countries in Europe with uh, uh, with these scooters. Right. And uh, do you also uh, talk to any other countries that don't have scooters at the moment to get in there? Um, yeah. So in Europe now, it's um, um, yeah, the only countries uh, not having legalized scooters. That's uh, Netherlands and the UK. Um, yeah. Of the uh, mm-hmm. of the bigger countries. And yeah, we are in discussions uh, in both countries, of course. So how how has it been going with Netherlands? Um, so Netherlands, uh, a bit of a similar situation as uh, as the UK. We're discussing like vehicle classification, how how and where should these ones be uh, uh, these ones uh, be uh, be ridden. Uh, the good thing there is that Netherlands uh, doesn't have a, a, a exit or a Netherlands exit on the <laughs> on the table. So hopefully it will move uh, faster there. Um, but I think Netherlands would be a great market. Do you think it's going to happen in any foreseeable future? I mean, on, on UK, we hope. Yeah, we hope that uh, yeah, within two, three years, for sure. I don't have any high hopes for twenty uh, twenty, uh, unfortunately. And Netherlands, uh, I think, faster than that. Right, because I mean, I- I'm I'm from the Netherlands myself, so I kind ah, okay. of uh, see the situation and I. Honestly, my own uh, personal opinion is that e-scooters have no business on the Dutch roads because we have way too many bicycles already and uh, tourists riding e-scooters that don't even require uh, actual force to be propelled forward are dangerous. Yeah, and I think uh, people said the same about uh, Sweden and uh, Denmark as well. I mean, Denmark is a cycling country, Swedish is a cycling country, uh, but we have seen, um, um, yeah, we've seen great demand both from... Um, or mainly from people living there 
um, yeah, using them to and from work and uh, um, yeah, during weekends to explore new parts of their cities, um, but also from tourists coming there. I don't. Uh, I don't doubt that there would be demand. Uh, yeah. Although I am pretty sure there is going to be lower uh, in the Netherlands than elsewhere because you don't really need to uh, go uh, up hills. But still, don't you think uh, that something that's going 20 kilometers per hour, which is faster than an average cyclist, uh, would be dangerous? I think. I mean, first of all, 20 kilometers per, per hour is not faster than the average cyclist. If you look at the in, the, in the Netherlands, it is. Ah, uh, if you if you look at uh, Copenhagen and Stockholm, the cyclists rather go in 30 or 35 kilometers per hour. Um, and I think it's the same. I mean, Netherlands is not. Uh, um, if I said it's, it's it's a country and a market similar to some of the ones we're operating, where we see it's working very well. But there will be challenges there as well. Uh, yeah, around education, around. Uh, um, yeah, around the same topics as uh, as we see in other markets, but I definitely uh, see Netherlands being a, a, an attractive and strong market for this. Yeah, that I also don't doubt. Uh, but and again, you, you you're talking about uh, people using uh, the e-scooters being uh, locals, but I cited before uh, this. A study in a previous interview in France, I think it was done in Lille, uh, when it was figured that actually most of the users were tourists, like and not locals. Is it? Uh, is this how you see e-scooters? Um, no, what we see is that it differs per market. I mean, if you go to very touristy cities, uh, yeah, say Paris, uh, you see a higher, uh, higher percentage of uh, tourists using the service, of course. But if you go to other markets, I mean, say. Helsinki, uh, say Stockholm, Gothenburg in Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, some of the Danish cities, most of the German cities, I mean, the Karlsruhe, uh, Munich, Stuttgart, uh, Hamburg, and so on, we see that uh, yeah, around 70-80% of the users are, are locals. But yeah, it differs per market. I see. If you had to choose, what would you, which cities would you name the most e-scooter friendly in Europe? From a regulatory point of view or from a user like demand? Let's, let's do one after the other. Ah, okay. Um, I think the cities that have pro, yeah, that are pro most progressive when it comes to regulations now are the, uh, are the French uh, the French cities and some of the German cities, Marseille. We talked mm -hmm. about Paris is doing a good thing now, I think. Some of the German cities like Munich, Hamburg are doing something similar. Uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to demand um, and uh, uh, product market fit, uh, we see that uh, uh, yeah, some of the Nordic markets, um, the French markets, we know Tel, Tel Aviv um, is super, super super strong. Um, and uh, um, yeah, interesting. Are you also interested in expansion uh, beyond Europe? No, I think Europe is the most attractive region, as I said. So we're uh, focusing on on winning here in Europe uh, first and expanding from a. Yeah, strong, strong footprint. Right. Okay, and to round this up, how do you see the perfect regulation uh, that uh, would come along within the next few years? Uh, no, so I think uh, on a national uh, level, uh, countries should do something similar to Germany. Uh, so quite tough and tough regulations and requirements on the vehicle because that creates a situation where only professional um, yeah, professional companies uh, 
um, yeah, can operate and uh, run the service. And uh, on a city level, I, I think what Marseille is doing is, uh, is uh, quite good, uh, where they are giving out licenses to yeah, two, three players uh, for a longer time period so we can invest in the market, invest in people, invest in warehouses and so on, and also invest together with the cities yeah, to solve like the parking thing with virtual hubs, with mm-hmm. some physical hubs, uh, with uh, uh, protected bike lanes and things like that. So, uh, what uh, what can you build yourselves? What do you think of this uh, that you just mentioned? Um, of um, the infrastructure, the infrastructure. Yeah. Works. So we, uh, I mean, everything that's virtual and uh, technology driven, uh, we are in a very good position to uh, to drive and build. Uh, we're experimenting now also with, um, for example, parking racks and parking infrastructure, uh, both uh, here in the Nordics, but also in uh, in France now. Uh, of course, we we cannot build protected bike lanes. <laughs> the cities uh, the cities need to decide and do that. Uh, but we can we can come with uh, input on best practice of what we see around the world. And what do you think of helmets? Um, in the end, that um, uh, yeah, I would say that the transport minister in the UK said it quite well. So why uh, why don't we have mandatory helmets for bikes? It's because we want the barrier to usage should be quite low. And if we, uh, as we do, um, believe that uh, bikes, e-bikes and e-scooters are in a, I mean, in a similar equivalent uh, cohort of vehicles, um, I think the same rule should apply, for, uh, should apply for all of them. We want the barriers to usage yeah, to be low. Um, and um, um, yeah, in the end, use, yeah, the users need to take responsibility. We are in the hands of the users uh, to some extent. Understood. Frederick, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for Good having luck. me. Yeah, thank you. Now, this is it for today's special episode. Let us know what you think on Twitter or send an email to Andre at TechEU. We are always happy to hear from you. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. If you by any chance are not a subscriber to this show yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app to get a new episode every week. Thanks for listening, enjoy the rest of the week, and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.